Yes, and welcome to Ponder with me, Nathan Rainsford. In this episode, I'll be interviewing George Saunders, award-winning author whose accolades include the MacArthur Genius Grant and the Man Booker Prize. To all three of you who have been with us since the beginning, hi Dad, you may remember that the first thing I ever talked about on Ponder was the phenomenal 2017 Man Booker Prize winning novel Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. To literature now and the book that won this year's prestigious Man Booker Prize, Nathan has been pondering Lincoln in the Bardo. So you can imagine how excited I was when, after I sent a random hopeful email, I received an incredibly generous and gracious reply from George accepting to speak to me about his writing. I speak to George in this interview about his new book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which Penguin Random House were kind enough to send me. George teaches a class on the Russian short story to his MFA students at Syracuse University, and this book is a version of that class for us. The book pairs seven essays written by George with stories by four Russian literary giants, Tolstoy, Chekhov, Gogol and Turgenev. It is a literary masterclass on what makes great stories work and what they can tell us about ourselves and our world. It's out on January 12th, and if you're all interested in why literature matters, or if you just like reading brilliant sentences about other people's brilliant sentences, then I thoroughly recommend you get a copy. I should be upfront and say that, while I tried to keep it relatively cool in this interview, I was very nervous and a little starstruck. You know that question about who would be on your fantasy dinner table of five, while George Saunders has always been on mine. I think what strikes me most about his writing is that it leaves you with a warm feeling about the ambient sameness of humanity. It is an antidote to that sometimes superior feeling we might have we think about ourselves among the nameless crowd. What a powerful thing to know, writes Saunders somewhere, that one's own desires are mappable onto strangers. To George, writing is a sacred act of communication, writer to reader, that brings us all closer, a tool to melt away all the barriers we build for ourselves or that are built between us. Ever since I started reading books by George Saunders, I'd been keeping a mental list of questions I would ask him if I ever got to speak to him. Questions about the social and ethical function of literature. Questions about the art of writing a beautiful sentence, or how becoming a better reader can make us better human beings. So it was a privilege to actually be able to explore all of these things with him. I began by asking George where the idea for his new book on the Russian masters came from, and why now? Uh, I had done a lot of touring for Lincoln, probably, probably too much. And uh, so I took a year off of teaching. And then when I came back to it, I just had this, um, well, it was so much fun, you know, to be in a classroom again. And we just had one of these classes where it's, you know, sort of a magical uh, mind meld among the, you know, the 25 people in the room. And so <laughs> after the class, I just thought, you know, I, I've maybe underestimated how much this teaching has meant to me over the years and how much it's helped me. And, and, and beyond that, just how much, um, how, how many of my favorite moments of human communication have happened in the, in the classroom. And especially around this class I've been teaching since 97 or so about the Russians. So I thought, you know, uh, you're, not, you're, not, you're not as young as you used to be. Um, and all of this kind of collective understanding of these stories that I've gotten mostly from being in these exquisite classrooms full of, you know, these great young writers, uh, it basically dies with me if, if I don't formalize it, you know. So I thought, oh, it'd be kind of nice, you know, to sort of, 
just put those things down on paper uh, as a way of, of sort of, you know, uh, commemorating that class. And then also maybe I thought to sort of take a breath, you know, here at this point in my career and kind of just say, well, let's, let's, you know, come at the story form fresh, like it with beginner mind. Uh, and maybe that would inform the rest of the work that I'm going to do. And so that was the idea. And I floated it by my editor at Randall. I said, yeah, that sounds great. And uh, I think I kind of thought it would just be typing up the class notes, which of course, you know, it turns out to be <laughs> not bad, but, but um, yeah, so that was it really. What stage was the book at when the pandemic hit? I suppose I'm wondering what it's been like for you to work on it during this strange year. It, it was probably, I think it was about three quarters of the way done before the pandemic started. Uh, I'd been working on it up in California, just, um, you know, uh, rereading the stories and drafting essays and going through revision. And then the pandemic hit and it kind of felt like, um, you know, I, I had the thought certainly like, wow, uh, here we are in the apocalypse and I'm writing about these, you know, four dead Russian guys. But, but at least, you know, maybe selfishly and personally, it was kind of awesome to go up every day and just go, all right, the world is falling apart, but these stories are still awesome. And I'm going to, you know, sit down and, and um, almost like, it sounds a little corny, but it's like, I feel like you sort of purify yourself a little bit by, by concentrating on an outside object. So I'm concentrating on Chekhov. I'm concentrating on what the way the story is working on my mind. I'm concentrating on trying to make my reaction, uh, trying to write it up in an articulate way. And uh, so I'd always come down from those sessions feeling a little more hopeful and a little bit almost like with a sense of humor, like, okay, so the world is falling apart, but it'll, it'll put itself back together again. Uh, so in, on this, on the one level, it's a selfish way of, of kind of focusing during the thing. Um, but then I, I would say too, you know, you kind of realize that that, that literature, you know, as you know, um, it's all about connection. It's about one mind, uh, connecting with a remote mind and that remote mind might be dead, you know, or might be have originally thought in Russian or whatever. But when people, you know, when you focus your attention on a story and in this book, the idea is that me and the reader are focusing our minds together on this story. Um, there's something just kind of healing about that. You know, the idea that it's possible to talk about things in a common vocabulary and it's possible to, um, be moved by imaginary events and so on. So I think it's, uh, I, I, I found myself feeling, but believing more in the project as the pandemic got worse as a way of saying, you know, we're not gonna get out of this oh, and, the, and the election and all that. We're not gonna get out of these problems by arguing or by, you know, bashing each other with political ramrods. But we might be able to get out of it by rebooting and saying, you know, we have incredible powers of communication if we only tend to them. Yeah, that's something that really comes through both in these stories that you've chosen for the book and in your own writing, that capacity for language and stories to transcend time, place, culture and, and connect people fundamentally. And is that what attracted you to choosing these particular seven stories for the book? You mentioned in the introduction that these were stories that wanted to ask the big questions of life, how we're supposed to be living down here, what we should value how we identify truth, peace, live with joy. These are things that you say that these Russian writers explicitly asked and wanted their stories to ask. And is that what attracted you to them, both as you read them for the first time and taught them in your class, but also to choose them, these seven, for this book? Yeah, you're absolutely. I, you know, I was um, from Chicago, kind of, a, I guess you would be a working class part. And I, I read a little bit as a kid, but not 
you know, uh, mostly sports books and so on. So when I got to about college age, I was really interested in, you know, kind of like the big corny new age questions like how should we live? What is virtue? Um, what is beauty? And um, I somehow blundered into reading Tolstoy at, at that point, I think, and maybe Dostoevsky. And I just was excited by the fact that they seemed to be, th those stories seemed to be located on precisely what I was wondering about. And I, even at that age, I didn't have much interest in stories that were sort of decorative or show-offy or, uh, you know, intellectual with a capital I. I really wanted them to be, I guess, to do me some good, you know, to tell me what should I think of other people, uh, what mind state should I aspire to. And I think a lot of that came from being raised Catholic, where all of the aesthetic, um, you know, falderall uh, of the mass, which is considerable, was always subjugated to this larger, uh, moral ethical purpose. So I just responded to them, you know, in this, like, um, kind of in the same way that I might have to a piece of music or something like I really, I, I really felt the human beings on the other side. So then <laughs> with this book, it was kind of a matter of, um, you know, it, it's modeled on a class I, I taught at Syracuse. And in that class, we might cover 40 stories in a semester. So, you know, for, I had to I had to cut it down for book purposes. And I think it was just a matter of finding the seven or, you know, it could have been six, it could have been eight stories that um, taught the best. And over the 20 years of teaching them, these were the seven. And then trying to, you know, kind of wrangle them into an order that would make the resulting essays be sort of shapely and, and uh, tell a story of their own. That's fascinating what you say about when you were younger, not being interested in literature that you that show off. -y. I remember myself being at university and feeling and, and this is certainly a gross generalization, but feeling that literature after the end of the 19th century, which is, of course, when Tolstoy and, and these chaps were writing, it moved away from big moral questions and became more interested in questions of aesthetics, I suppose. And I, I guess I'm thinking broadly of the postmodern movement. And in your essay on the first Tolstoy story in the book, you have that, that great quotation from Milan Kundera, that great novels are always a little more intelligent than their authors. Yeah, that they somehow have to transcend authors' tastes and even talent. Mm. So I suppose a question I have is whether you see a trend in literature back towards writing that is asking these big questions. I mean, you certainly ask big questions in your writing, but I also wonder if the students you teach at Syracuse are, are, are doing the same thing, are asking those questions. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep one, Nathan. I, I think what I'd say is that, um, well, first say that I, I think we can sometimes get in a trap when we've as soon as we put the words moral and story in the same sentence, it gets a little bit complicated. What I, what I try to remember is that the, the moral ethical function of a story isn't just in what happens to the characters. It's, it's also in the language, you know, so, so Joyce, James Joyce to me is a deeply, you know, moral ethical writer because this, the sentences are so beautiful and when we say they're beautiful what we mean is they're kind of true or they kind of do more than sentences should be able to do and then if we look at what that does to the reader which is enliven the reader that that's inherently moral ethical so i think we have to sort of define it broadly in other words it's not the case that you know every story has to overtly take up the big question and, and provide an answer and in fact a lot of these russian stories they take up the big questions and then they're very wise in the way that they decline to give you an answer. They just they just lead you to the water and go, look at that water. 
sit here and think about it a while, you know? So I, I'm, I think um, with my students, um, I guess what I would say is I'm certainly more willing now in my advanced age to say to them, look here, this on page six, you did a beautiful thing here that seems to have a, a moral ethical valence. So don't, don't shy away from it. It's okay. You know, the great stories do ask the big questions. Um, and of course, you know, like if you take Donald Barthelme, I wouldn't think anyone would call him an overtly moral ethical writer, but he really is. And he said his purpose was to break your heart. So it might just be a matter of the means by which we understand our work to be moral ethical. And that of course uh, allows for infinite variety. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's true. That the beauty of a sentence can enliven you, that it enacts some real impact upon you, enlivens you somehow to the beauty of the world. Also, the way that a, a sentence can replicate or somehow replicate the way humans think. You talk about that in your essay on the first story in the book, that Chekhov understands that humans don't think in a linear way and that his, therefore his sentences and, and the way he has his characters think is not linear. So we see our own human non-linearness, if you will, in the characters, non-linearness in the story. Do you have a favorite among the seven stories? Um, I, you know, with this process of just, I basically just read those seven stories for two years. So I, I love each one of them. And, you know, it's a little bit like, um, those Charlie Brown, uh, shows, you know, I identify with every one of the stories now from some part of my psychology, you know, um, I, I actually came to, I think, I think of all the stories that in the cart that you're mentioning, that's the one that I uh, kind of came the furthest on. I, I, I just put it in there because I knew it was always a lively discussion. And then to go through it the way I do in the book, just a page at a time, really made me um, appreciative of the of the craft in that story. And, you know, you, you mentioned the um, kind of internal monologues. And as you said it, I thought, oh, that's I took a lot from these stories in that realm. You know, I love in my stuff to kind of pretend to model actual human thought. And I think you can get a lot of meaning by the way that human beings think badly. You know, so if you're if you're pretending to show a person thinking you've got his thoughts to make meaning, but you also have his perhaps um, oblique relation to his own thoughts or his inability to express himself clearly or his uh, sort of um, circular logic that also makes character. That, that, re that also refers a bit to the Gogol story where uh, this Ska's narration where one of, the, one of the features of the narration is how inefficient it is. So th this again goes back to this thought we had about um, moral ethical uh, content. I, I think a, a sentence in English is the most uh, complex and subtle communication tool ever devised. And when you and I, when I say a sentence in, or when I write a sentence and you read it, we're connecting on so many levels. You're supplying imagery, uh, you're supplying context. I'm subtly correcting or affirming that. Uh, it's just an amazing human connection. So in the book, one of the points I'm trying to make is that uh, the one factor of this moral ethical power can be simply that you and I are leaning in together and I'm, I'm respecting you uh, by the way I'm writing to you and I'm, and I'm desiring closer communication with you by those little micro adjustments in text that I make while revising. Uh, that's deep, you know, the, the way that two minds can actually know more about each other than they should be able to, and certainly more than they can know uh, about each other from conversation you know it, it's it's a whole different dimension yeah you describe in the book that the way you write is through constant revision 
and, and frankly, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> now, I know this wasn't your goal, of course, but it made me really appreciate your writing because of how much, how much you must have read it again and again and again before you were happy with it. One, one thing you say at the beginning of the book that really interested me was that the goal of the program at Syracuse that you teach this course on is not necessarily a technical one. The goal is not technical. It's not to teach students how to write because the students that are accepted to the program are already technically excellent writers. But you write that you want to help them become defiantly and joyfully themselves. And I'm wondering, when I read that, one thing I wondered, and as I think about your early work up to this book that you're, that, that, that's just come out, whether there was a moment as a writer that you felt, yeah, this is me. This is George Saunders writing, regardless of whether you thought it was good or bad. Yeah. I mean, there was a moment that you've never read, you know, that in others, there was a whole body of work before I started getting published where you would look, you would read and go, ah, I don't know who that guy is. He's, he's, he's confused. I, I think for me, you know, Nathan, part of the thing for me is to, um, let's see how I can explain this. All right. So I, I published my first book when I was pretty old already. Uh, older than I say most people are when they publish their first book. It took me a long time to get some of myself into the prose. And I did it by a very specific approach that I describe in the book. And so there's a kind of weird thing that happens where having done that, you know, like, oh my God, I'm in out of the wilderness. I've got a book out. I now, now I know how to do it. Then you start clinging to that approach and you start clinging to the way you sound, which is kind of a death sentence, you know, because if you just keep doing that, then of course it becomes predictable. And in, and in the second book, where you're trying to sound like the first book, you're already not doing what you did in the first book, which was, you know, you didn't know what you were trying to do. So I, I think that state of not attaching too much to what one has done or what one does is really at the at the core of the artistic enterprise. And in some ways, it's a it's a spiritual uh, or at least a psychological practice to say. Yeah, usually I do it this way, but if I cling to that, I'm going to be repetitive and I'm going to be, uh, it's going to be not fresh. So I think that for me is the, the, the trickiest thing is to say, I don't ever want to know who I am as a writer. And I don't really, I, I actually would prefer that my trajectory be a little incoherent because that means that I'm continuing to discover the different selves or artistic selves that are within me, you know? And so this, to take it back to revision, if one is revising in a truly open state of mind, then all you're saying is, what does the story want me to do? Which, you know, is another way of saying, what is the story's natural energy? Which is another way of saying, which line sucks the less, the least, you know, as I put it in here. Uh, and then if you, if you can really do that, and, and again, that's opposed to saying, how do I usually do it? Or does this sound like me? Or does this... If you can do it in that fresh state of mind, then you really do blunder into new territories because the mind is vast. You know, there's no there's no limit. I think if a person lived 7000 years and they were vigilant, they could keep producing new texts, I think. So that's really for me the game. And especially as you get older and you get maybe a little reputation, you're a little afraid to step too far out of the box. But that's actually the whole, you know, the whole challenge. And for me, the only way to do that is to try to approach each line with a fresh mind and say, what, you know, what would be most fun here and uh, put all the other stuff aside to the extent that one can. Yeah. To practice that kind of detachment though, from one book to another is, is one thing, but as you des describe yourself doing to detach yourself from what you wrote the previous day or even the previous line 
is something is something else entirely to have in the in the book you describe this internal yes no meter for each line to find you know does this does this line land and to, it's an intuitive process and it, it sounds very much to me definitely like a spiritual practice to detach yourself and then open yourself up to new possibilities with the text well i was just going to say it's so in some ways it's, it's deep and in some ways it's very simple and it has to do just with a slight for me anyway with a slight arrangement of the mind where it's literally just a microsecond kind of switch turning to say okay um <clears throat> read this as if you hadn't written it you know uh and then also to kind of say well and some days are better than others so some days i'm very open-minded i can find all kinds of new opportunities and sometimes i'm just moving commas around um but yeah i think it is you know the the aspiration to fresh vision you know that's something that certainly should translate out into real life where you you know you step into a moment and you know you you go to the usual bus stop and your mind says we're at the usual bus stop there's nothing to see here well that's actually incorrect or you say you know you've got a whole narrative built up about the bus stop and the people that you meet there um that's a form of autopilot actually you know and i think the impossible or near impossible aspiration would be to see every moment the same way that you're seeing a, a, a bit of text which is well i don't know you know let me let me quiet down my my concepts so that more data can get in uh and then suddenly you, that's sort of the definition of freshness i guess you know another thing i noticed in your essays after each story in in the book is that you were very generous about the reader's mind Sometimes you say something like, you were probably thinking. And in my mind, I thought, yeah, sure, George, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> but do you feel like you do have to have a lot of trust in the reader when you write fiction? Yes, I think, I think you're exactly right. And, and, um, and by the way, you have, these are terrific questions. They're so interesting. I'll be coming up with better answers at four in the morning probably. But, but um, the, the, I think, yes, you have to be, you have to trust your reader. So that's why for me, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, read it as if I hadn't read it. And um, then that's a form of trust, you know? So in other words, I think I'm a pretty good reader. So if I am imagining my reader to be as good a reader as I am, I'm going to write at a high level. Then there's that kind of move where you say, well, wait a minute. <clears throat> there's also the fact that it's, you know, th theoretically there's a lot of people reading this book. And so they're not all the same reader. But I think the model is to say, well, it's what we're doing right now. I don't know you. Uh, I know a little bit about your work, so I feel like I can, you know, really, really shoot high and, and, and you'll be there to meet me. But if you, uh, you know, you meet somebody, you don't know much about them. It's a pretty good strategy to assume that they're really smart and that they're really good hearted and that they're as worldly and well-traveled as you are. Uh, if you start the conversation that way, I don't know anybody who wouldn't lean into that conversation. You know, even, even if the person is overcrediting you, you still appreciate the respect. So I think that's the, that's the model. Uh, and then there's, I think sometimes, I guess over the years of publishing, you kind of, <laughs> you develop a sense for when you're being too obtuse or where you're assuming too much, and then you scale it back a little bit. You know, I heard um, the writer Frank Conroy one time, he came to Syracuse, and he said this really memorable thing. He he drew a big arc on the on the board, like a rainbow. And at one end he put a W for writer, and at the other he put an R for reader. And he said, "Okay, now every book it, it is located somewhere on this arc. So if and he drew a dot right by the W, 
he said, okay, this is a writer's book. And this is a book where the writer has really doesn't care if he communicates anything to anybody. He's just, it's just coming from inside him and it's for his own purposes. Uh, and he said, you know, maybe Finnegan's Wake would be over here or, you know, some completely unpublishable, incoherent book by somebody that's taking up space in his basement right now. Then he went to the other side and said, okay, now there's a dot right by the R for reader. Uh, that's a book that anybody can like, uh, maybe too much so, you know, it's like a sort of an airport book or a, uh, just a real, you know, big doorway book that doesn't really speak personally to anybody, but it's kind of painless. And then he said the most important thing, he said, okay, now you probably think that I'm going to put a dot right in the middle of this arc and urge your books to be there. He said, not at all. All I'm saying is your book is going to be somewhere in that arc and you have to decide where and you have, or maybe you don't, maybe it's just, you can't help it. But once your book is on that arc, you have to own it. You know, so if you happen to write an airport thriller, then don't complain about the fact that you're not winning awards. Or if you write the book that's way over there by the W and nobody likes to read it, you don't really have a right to complain about that. So he was implying, I think, that there's some, some choice involved in how accessible one wants to be. And that even within one's own career, there'll be some moving around in there. For me, it's been maybe a little, you know, starting towards the W and moving towards the R. Because when I was younger, I had a very, I was very insecure about being, that I would be thought uh, simple or sentimental. And I really liked edgy and I still do, but I also feel that there was some in my early self, there's a certain habit of protecting myself by doubling down on the edge. And if somebody didn't like it, I could say, oh, they're so uncool or they're so square. Now I'm, I'm like, you know, I'd actually like, uh, I, I would like my, books to be like the work of Tolstoy or Chekhov, simple enough. And I guess I, I don't like the word accessible, but let's say accessible enough that a person who is a, just a good reader would feel welcomed into them. I'm, I'm off your, I'm way off your question. But. No, not at all. That's also what struck me about Master and Man, that story by Tolstoy that you include in the book and talk about that it's a, it's a very accessible story. It's a thriller, really, but with a very complex and profound message. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a page turner about two people stranded in a snowstorm trying to survive. But at its, very, at its heart, more deeply, it's about the capacity we have as humans to transform, not in some idealized epiphanic moment, but as, as you describe in, in your essay on it, through our natural response as human beings to adversity. To making to making a choice about transforming so i guess i find that very interesting that it overcomes that dichotomy it's both simple and complex it's it's accessible and profound can i say Nathan, that that's such a great observation and you know it's uh, almost every great story is pretty simple and the and this is one of the things that that in the mfa i try to communicate is that it's okay to be simple you know in fact it's the hardest thing to be simple to make an elemental story that compels a person forward is really the whole job. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I didn't want to accept that because I couldn't do it yet. You know, and I still have trouble with it, but I, I thought, oh, no, no, that's old fashioned. I just want to be really freeform, you know, or, or dark or something. But, but I think like any art form, as you, as you progress in it, you're like, oh yeah. So simple is hard. Uh, heartfelt is hard. To just the old-fashioned kind of vaudevillian virtues of like making the reader turn the pages, uh, reaching that moment where the words disappear and the thing suddenly seems to be happening in your mind or, or to have happened to you. 
that's really high level stuff. And for me, it's always kind of thrilling when I see my students go, yeah, I knew that, you know, I knew that. Now let me try to learn how to do it. But you know, something I, I read about a lot um, is, is what is it that sets literature apart from other forms of entertainment? And one thing that certainly a writer like David Foster Wallace seemed to be saying, certainly through a book like Infinite Jest, is that it should demand more of us, that literature should make us work harder, that it should demand more of us, not necessarily just intellectually, but also emotionally. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I feel a little bit like, and, and I touch on this in the book, you know, everybody who writes, or I guess of any art form, they, you develop a, a, a patter, you know, you develop a way of talking about it, uh, a, a sort of a, you know, a bag of metaphors and ideas that you produce. And I think it's important to remember that everybody makes those up and they make them up as ways of, uh, you know, sort of like, they're, they're going down this long hallway of their own work and it's dark and, and it's scary in there. And they, they make up, we make up these epigrammatic things and these, these positions in order to just feel the walls around us, make sure we know where we are. So I think every writer has a different angle uh, by which he or she approaches work. For me, difficulty is not really something I, it doesn't, it just doesn't sink in. I don't, I don't really care about uh, to think about it that way except to this extent, I would say I never want to be difficult just because, you know, I, I want to be perceived as an intellectual writer or to sort of stymie the reader. I only, I have this idea of necessary difficulty. So if I'm trying to get, um, you know, to convey a certain moment, an emotional moment, I, I want to, you know, st step over the, the facile cliche things, which is another way of saying I want to go towards the emotional meat of the moment, then sometimes a technical means will suggest itself or, or a language, a feeling in the language will suggest itself. And I will do it if it makes the emotion more palpable. You know, so like in Lincoln and the Bardo, that form is, uh, for some people apparently is difficult, but I promise that I tried all the other simple forms first and they didn't work. So I think that way you, you kind of neutralize the whole idea of difficulty. You're just trying to be beautiful, you know, and if it takes a little bit of complexity to be beautiful, then you'd better do it. And conversely, if you're making complexity just because the, the reader will feel that as kind of a sundering of that intimate communication that we're talking about. You know, if you and I are out for lunch and all of a sudden, you know, you start speaking in, uh, you know, kind of like in Waiting for Godot, that one section, which is almost nonsense prose, I, I say, Nathan, why, what do you, what do you, what do you, and you keep doing it. Uh, I basically feel like I've been shunted out of the conversation you know i'm not i'm no longer a conversational partner i'm just sitting there and you're performing for me uh that's felt as a i would say a lessening of intimacy so whereas if you're trying to explain to me you know the details of your first love and you suddenly start waxing eloquent in a way that makes me really feel it then that feels like a an increase in communication so that's kind of my standard on on difficulty yeah that is really interesting what you say about Lincoln and the Bardo, which is written as a series of monologues, that it's about finding the form that speaks most truthfully, or rather communicates most truthfully what it is you're trying to say. Exactly. I gather from what you write and from other interviews I've seen you give, that you have a belief in a spiritual reality, that we aren't simply material beings existing on a material plane. 
And can I ask first if that's true? And if so, how it influences you as a writer, influences the way you write? Y yes. I mean, it's always been... Uh, y yes. I mean, I think the... Uh, let's see. Maybe I'll put it this way. It, it seems kind of not right to me to say that uh, that the way the world appears to us uh, is the way it is. That That seems scientifically wonky, you know, to say that we just happen to have been born with the sensory and mental apparatus that is exactly in scale with the universe. You know, I, don't, I don't think that's it. I think we're just these little, these little uh, fragments, you know, almost accidental fragments of consciousness. And so we, we hear and smell and see at certain frequencies that are helpful to keep us alive. And then that makes this crazy movie in our heads that we call consciousness. But what that has to do with what's actually out there is, is unknown, you know? So, so I guess at the first level, that just means we'd want to be a little cautious about our certainty. And then also, I think it would naturally turn, it would, it would lead us to sort of look at the machine and say, okay, I'm George, but actually what I am is a little consciousness producing machine. Uh, what are the features of that machine? What's it leaving out? What's it distorting? What's it privileging? Uh, and that, as I understand it, that's basically the spiritual life or it's meditation to say, let's get, let's see if we can find the owner's manual for this guy, you know, <laughs> um, that, that's, I mean, there, I don't think there's any distinction between uh, an intelligent or scientific approach to life and a spiritual approach. It's, you know, kind of the same. So then where it gets into maybe the spiritual is to say, uh, is it possible that, you know, we are reincarnated, something about us is reincarnated, you know, the great sages of history, it, mostly say yes. Now, I, I don't really understand that, but that I'm inclined to say is more a function of my limited understanding. So I, I or maybe another way to say it is I feel outgunned by this life all the time, you know, uh, born with this particular mind and body. And it's, it's kind of a weird little amalgam, you know, and it, it fails me all the time. And I, I, I know that because I will be anxious or I'll be neurotic or I'll be non-generous or I'll be self-obsessed. So that tells me that this amalgam that is me is, um, you know, it's partial, it's a little flawed. So for me, the, the quote unquote spiritual life is just a matter of saying, since we know from experience that that amalgam that is me is uh, mutable, you know, we have good days and bad days. Uh, we've had beautiful periods and terrible periods. Um, our minds function beautifully or, or doesn't function very well at all. Since it's mutable, um, we could aspire to you know, to live mostly in the more positive states. And then you say, okay, well, how do I do that? And then I think that opens up pretty naturally to what we would call uh, spiritual practice. And also that's not separate from uh, one's artistic practice too. So by a long way of saying yes. <laughs> yeah. It seems like we live in this world and we make certain assumptions about it to get by. And the assumptions we make about it about uh, other human beings, about who they are, how they are, uh, what they're like. It's, it's going to affect the way we live in this world. And the question I often ask myself as I read a book is, what is this writer's conception of what it means to be a human being? And you write in the introduction to this book that these writers, these four Russian writers, wrote out of the radical conviction that every human being is worthy of attention and that the origins of every good and evil capability of the universe can be observed in the turnings of a single mind. You must be exhausted with all, with all the potential for story around you all the time. 
You know, can I say something, you said something very beautiful just now? You said that, you know, you're, uh, I, I won't get it right, but you said something like we're always, you know, creating expectations for the people around us. And that's exactly right. And it's, you know, that's called projection. And I think that's what literature can really help us with. It, it, it lets us do that in a kind of protected environment uh, of this, the scale model that is a story. So, you know, in like in the cart, we get to uh, watch our mind creating a lonely, helping to create a lonely person. And we see what our sort of habitual attitude is towards a lonely person. And then over the course of the story, Chekhov familiarizes us with her so much that we kind of love her by the end. So that that's a pretty good scale model for what we're trying to do in life. You know, you see some guy, you don't like him or you do like him, whatever. And then if, you know, if you could know him in that Chekhovian way, you would feel incrementally fonder of him. You still might not approve of him, but you would feel more in connection with him. So I think that's really the, at the heart of what the, you know, the literary thing is. For me, I don't really, uh, I think if you're really thinking like a writer, and I've done this for brief periods in my life, then it's not exhausting. It's kind of, I mean, you're right, there's stories everywhere. And it, you're, you're filled with a kind of a curiosity that can border on affection, you know, or love. Um, but also, you know, you see that a story actually, I mean, when I was young, I was like, tell me everything you know, so I can make a story out of it. And now you think, I think a story is really almost more like a mathematical system where in the first portion, you raise an expectation or you create a, a status quo or static environment. And in the second part, you alter it. And, and if the alteration comes naturally out of the stasis, that's a story, you know? So then I could understand, like, there's a story that Chekhov once, somebody was asking him how he wrote, and he said, ah, you know, just give me an idea. And the person pointed to an ashtray, and Chekhov went home that night, I guess, and wrote this story, the ashtray, that we still read today. But that's because, it's not because he knew a lot about life or about ashtrays, but because he understood that the basis of the story form is create stasis and then disrupt it. In a, in a non-random way, you know? So in that sense, the, the world is definitely full of stories, you know? Everything is a story. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's sort of like life, isn't it? We exist at the status quo or in a status quo and we have our expectations or assumptions about someone or something. And then those are challenged by reality or, or by the truth somehow. We, we learn something new about something or someone. And then we are challenged, we have the challenge of responding. And that's what's fascinating about stories to me, because we're doing that with a writer, a skillful, masterful writer who is helping us draw, hopefully draw closer to that someone or something, guiding us in that process. And in, in some ways, that's that's love, isn't it? I mean, to, to reimagine people anew, to have that um, willingness to re reimagine people anew. And is that something you try to do with the characters you write to, to help the readers reimagine like that, to, to go on that journey? Yeah, that's such a beautiful idea. And I think that, you know, the, the one thing I would add to it is that you, by reading and by writing, you become comfortable with that process, you know, and you become uh, expectant that that process will happen. So, you know, you, you can kind of step outside yourself and say, okay, I'm in relation to this person now, but it could change. And in fact, the closer I look, the more it will change. And, and again, the, the other thing that you said is that it's not really that it isn't necessarily that you, you know, you know, you meet, you meet some Nazi and you, you like him better, you know, you meet somebody and you're, you're, as you, as you concentrate on them in a literary way, the your mind fills up with facts and specifics. 
And as that happens, it might make you more affectionate for the right person, but it really just puts you more in relation to that person. It, it fills you with data. And, it, and I think the, the fundamental literary experience is to be comfortable with that, you know, to, to lean into that uh, data filling instead of being afraid of it. You know, so that maybe is the, the deepest way to see it. We, we, we don't have to, I mean, in these stories, I think we do feel more affection for the characters, but the high level thing is to say, whatever I feel, I'm feeling it. Um, I'm feeling a multiplicity of things. I'm okay with that. I'm feeling ambiguity. I'm okay with that. I'm feeling confused. I'm okay with that. I'm feeling like I don't know shit. I'm okay with that. Um, so the, so the, the writer gets and the reader gets more comfortable with the flow, ebb and flow of their own minds, uh, which I think is sort of a definition of confidence, maybe. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting what you say about data. And um, maybe we need to be more scientific in the way we think and approach people, think about people and approach them. A, a good scientist would never come to a conclusion with a scarcity of data. And, and so often we have so little data about people before we make conclusions. Um, and I guess that's what stories do. They, they train us to, to, to gather data. Well, no, true, true, because if a scientist, you know, if a scientist is halfway through an experiment and it goes a different way than he thought, he doesn't get mad, theoretically. You know, he just says, oh, okay, I, I accept, you know. So I think that's, uh, and a scientist has, a good scientist has a lot of um, aplomb. You know, they can start the experiment hoping one thing will happen. And when it doesn't, they, they accept it as a good thing, you know, that the truth is flooding in. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And you know, maybe at some level, there's a name for something that is both scientific and spiritual, and it's the same. You know, they're the same thing, which has to do with what we're saying. You know, the openness to data, uh, the comfort in the face of you know the real complexity that is the world, and so on. We have yeah. to start a new religion now. I think. <laughs> yes, quite. And well, those two approaches, the scientific and the spiritual, share in the fact that they both have to make certain assumptions. I suppose to 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 actually act in the world, we, we have to make assumptions about human beings. If we, we, we act on the assumption that they're worthy of love, etc. And that's, that's the spiritual approach. And then a scientist has to make the assumption that there's, that there's order in the universe. And then she acts on that. One of the things we were taught in engineering school is that the, how do they say it? The, um, a good, a good uh, experiment is one that under, understands its own limitations. So you design an experiment, but you know, from the design that you're excluding certain facts and you're, uh, it, the, the experiment is asking these questions and not those other questions. So I think that's another part of uh, the sort of self-awareness of, of that the literature can induce is you, uh, you, you understand that you're, you start looking at the mind that's producing the stories and you see that it's actually, ultimately that's the topic. You know, the mind is the topic. Um, there's a Chekhovian mind that, is making all this stuff up in a particular mold and with particular assumptions. And there's a Tolstoyan mind, which is different. And then there's your mind, which is different. And so stories ultimately, I guess, are not really about the world as much as they're about the individual minds that are creating them. Um, so that's a whole other, you know, kind of deep well. And do you share Tolstoy's view that people are generally more similar to other people than they are different to other people? I think that's a good, you know, as you said, it's a good baseline assumption. Let's, let's assume, you know, that this, that this person over here with whom you disagree is more like you than different. Now, that doesn't mean they're not different, but I think it, it gives you a basis, uh, you know, because then you're understanding, if, if I look at someone 
with whom I'm in political disagreement as, you know, just somebody who's on a different part of the scale from myself. That seems to me more workable. And, and actually it seems true. I mean, when I was in college, I was kind of a Reaganite, you know, Ayn Rand Reaganite. And I remember that mindset very clearly, you know, and I can see it in, in Trumpies. I, I can just, I, I can understand it. So that's a little bit embarrassing for me because I'm now, you know, left of Gandhi, but it's true. And I remember, and I wasn't a bad person and I wasn't a, actually even a different person. I, I just had some different concepts floating around and I was making my identity with different assertions, you know, about, about the world. So I think that, to me, it's very powerful to say, let's assume that everybody's on, you know, the same spectrum, not, uh, you know, the same arc. Uh, and let's assume that if somebody is doing something we don't like, we could get actually under the hood of their mind and understand it because we might do that ourselves. I don't think that's true for people with true mental illness. Uh, I don't, it, it's maybe, well, that might be the one exception you can make that assumption, but it's a good starting assumption. And it, uh, we will certainly reach the limits of it if we, if we need to. But I think, yeah, I think that's the, and it's the assumption of literature. You know, if I start saying, telling you a story about a guy, um, we all know that the game is, as we've described it, we're going to get closer to this person and they're going to come to seem more understandable to us rather than less. Uh, and again, not necessarily more likable, you know, uh, and I would, you know, point to Flannery O'Connor stories for, for that. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think that's a good starting assumption. Yeah, that, that's the job of literature is, is interesting. And I, I remember in your older essay, Brain Dead Megaphone, you talk about how certain voices in the media relieve us of the burden of living with ambiguity is how you put it. And that's a line that's always stuck in my mind. And it, it seems to me that it's lit, well, that one of the jobs of literature is to help us become comfortable with ambiguity, to learn to live with ambiguity. Yeah, and I think it's it's sort of built right into the function, you know, like if you, um, let's say, that, and this is a, a too simple example, but let's say you're writing a story in which um, a person is making the case for uh, Christian virtue, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a character who goes to church every day, and she's very, she has certain thoughts about that. Now, as you're writing that person, you're going to make a specific person, and let's say that this one, now, if she's perfect, there's no story, you know, so, so if she's Jesus, there's no story, but since she's a person following Jesus, she's going to have some excesses in her self-narration, so let's say that she's just a tad uh, self-righteous, okay, well, then that becomes the topic of the story, essentially, you know, that's what the story has to work with, so, you know, then he, the reader will understand immediately that she, that that's the that's the notion that we brought up for questioning. That that in it, that right there is a definition of ambiguity, because first of all, she's a Christian and she's and she should have some good ideas in her self narration, and then there's just a little tiny hint of what happens when that viewpoint goes too far, and the reader says, "Well, which is it?" And we say both, because here she is; she's got both those valences. So then it's already ambiguity. You know, it's already ambiguous. Um, and I think in these stories, now this, it's interesting because I'm trying to figure out if we still believe this, but in these stories, what I've noticed is that they, Chekhov in particular, will make one truth and you're with him. And then he runs over to the other side of the table and makes a counter truth and you're with him still. So the two counter truths kind of hang there and, and then he looks at you like, yeah, I got to go now. You know, uh, I'm not sure that our stories, 
I mean, it's one way in which stories can work, but what it does is it kind of calls into question our certainty, you know, which I think is a, a good thing. And again, to go back to the beginning, it's a moral ethical thing to say, okay, most days in most situations we are and should be pretty morally certain, but in this little realm of the story, we can kind of get hit in the head a little bit and, and we can uh, basically get a better understanding of what our judgment, judgment machine is you know, how actively we're judging all the time and how, and then how little data. So just when you get to the end of a checkup story and you don't know what you think, that's a pretty sacred space. Even if you're just in it for four or five minutes, it's not our usual thing, you know? And I've had that experience doing nonfiction too. You go out into a story and you're just sure what you think and you're going to demonstrate that truth. And then reality comes flooding in and pretty soon you're just sitting there with a blank head, like what the hell is I right? You know, that, that's, um, that's to be desired, I think. George, you've been incredibly generous uh, with your time. I don't want to take any more of it. So I just want to thank you so much for your time and and um, express that your, your writing has always affected me deeply. And it's a, it's a privilege to get to speak to you. Um, I told you in my original email to you, um, one of the most sacred reading experiences of my life was sitting on a commuter train and reading your story, 10th of December. And it just made me weep like a child on this totally packed train. Well, thank you. You're, you're a magnificently generous interviewer. And I love, I love your mind. And I hope we can, we can talk again in person when this whole uh, pandemic goes away. Oh, well, yeah, I, I would absolutely love that. George, thanks again. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. You, was, you, yeah. My mind is all lit up now. <laughs>